Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to a triple threat of an episode where we will focus on three films that are the third effort in their franchise. Join us, please, as we do a triple take on The Howling, Part 3, The Exorcist, Part 3, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3. So, three cheers for those spine-chilling sequels that surpassed not necessarily the original, but debatably the second installment of their saga. And now, for your enjoyment and edification, we are pleased to present Boys and Ghouls, episode 81, all about three, part three. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing good dead for I want to kill the undead. So you ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Not the third switch! Give my creation! fast slate like like a one two three and we both snap our fingers yeah sure okay so like one two three snap cool um okay i can tell you having done this before myself because i interviewed two people on podcasts remotely and all you have to do is get it lined up right on a couple words and then you're golden going forward Okay, I hope so. It's a little bit more of a challenge when you start clipping things out, but, um, you know, rumor has it, you don't have anything else going on right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. All right. Uh, so, Kat, in these days... Um, yeah, I guess we should position to the listeners that this is a landmark for Boys and Ghouls, which is... We're not in the same room. We're not in the same room. No. This marks our first remote recording because um, if you're listening to this from in the future, we are in the middle of continuing to be in the middle of a shelter-in-place order because of COVID-19. So, yeah, whew, it's quite a time. But you and I have been staying in touch by taking some walks together and venturing into like cemeteries to take walks and just trying to find ways to connect. One of our first walks, we went to the space that. Bela Lugosi's old home occupied. Yep. Uh, it's an apartment building now. And the appeal of that also was, it's like two blocks from where you live. It's literally on the street where I live. Pretty crazy. You're like, right in my own backyard. This is where uh, Bela once hung his cape. And you showed me another landmark that was around the corner from Even my... closer. Yeah, even closer. The car lot from Psycho, where, where she goes to trade her car in. And the cop is watching from across the street. Arguably, for me, the most anxiety-inducing scene in the movie, quite honestly. Yeah. <laughs> then we went to a, a couple of cemeteries. First time in uh, in Burbank, we saw Criswell's grave. Yeah. Where he's interred. Criswell from Plan 9 from Outer Space, part of Ed Wood's crew of oddballs, I guess. 
And then we went to Forest Lawn, Hollywood, and we found Penny and Gary Marshall's grave from uh, for the purposes of something spooky. They were both together in Hocus Pocus. Yeah. And then Scatman Crothers is not far from there, a little bit downhill. That was a real thrill. And also, I should say, if we've not talked about it much on this podcast before, the Forest Lawn Memorial Parks are really yeah. a treat if you come to L.A. and visit. One of our listeners, um, Britt, actually was in L.A. and she and I connected and we went to Forest Lawn Glendale together. Um, But I discovered really upon researching it a little bit more and kind of going in some of the mausoleums with my in-laws, actually, I took them there. Uh Kind of the greater purpose behind the the Forest Lawn Memorial Parks. And I was really charmed because the people who designed it were like, the the point of it was so that it wasn't just going to be a cemetery. It would be a truly a park where lovers would walk together. People would (laughs) sit on benches and read books like that. It would not be just a place of death and sadness, but a place of life and celebration and beauty. So, I mean, you really, nobody does a cemetery like a forest lawn. I mean, when we saw Penny and Gary Marshall, they were nestled under a gigantic statue of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty and then crazy. Over by the big statue of George Washington, we found Ernie Anderson, known to some as Goulardi, <laughs> the old horror host. He was a horror host in the uh, Cleveland, Ohio area, but after he was done there, he moved to Los Angeles and became the voice of ABC. And we did an episode about horror hosts. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you're listening and you haven't heard that, um, can't recommend it enough. It's one of the episodes we did that I personally learned the most on because I really didn't know very much. I knew who Elvira was, but I I didn't Mm -hmm. really understand the concept until you taught me that, Marshall. And then researching that episode was just such a great learning experience. Yeah, if you want to learn who Goulardi was and anything more about horror hosts, check that one out. For now, though, Kat, our topic is... Part threes. And I couldn't think of any uh, any music, actually, to go in here. Really? Songs about part threes? Hmm. I mean, there's one is the loneliest number. Is there a <laughs> song with, with the word three in the title? Well, knock three times. Ha! On the ceiling if you want me. Right. Give Me Three Steps by Leonard Skinnerd, A classic. Yeah. That's really funny. I never even thought to think about this. Actually, um, before you called, I was thinking of uh, Dolly Parton's uh, Here You Come Again. Oh, that's cute. It doesn't have three in it. I love that. No, that's actually a great idea. That's a great idea. Okay. That's cute. Maybe I'll, I'll put it in. like you've done before and wrap my heart round your little finger okay so cat marshall three part threes is what we decided to cover three movies that are the third installment in their franchise specifically and i guess this is the order we'll, we'll, we'll cover them in howling three exorcist three and nightmare on elm street three the dream warriors I don't know if this means anything, but I do think it's interesting that all three of these movies, two of them came out in the same year, and another one came out just three years after. And I wonder, um, I don't know, I think it's interesting that they all came out. Is that because we are fans of movies from the late 80s slash 1990? Or is it because a lot of 
sequels came out, a lot of, you know, third movies in a series came out right around I'd that time. I'd say both. Yeah. But uh, sequels were really big mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. And numbering them. I think the first sequel to even get a number was The Godfather 2. Wow. Before that, it would just be like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, right. Ghost of Frankenstein. But nothing ever said Frankenstein 2. You know. Interesting. And now we've kind of reached a point in the zeitgeist where the higher the number, kind of the lower in esteem things tend yeah. to be thought of, probably because a lot of series sequels were kind of just bad carbon copies of um, yes. of the original. Sequels suck. No, wow. Come on, man. Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. Expectations are usually pretty low for a sequel. Uh, not always. I mean, now with, with the mega franchises, I'll just call them, with your, uh, with your cinematic universes, it's a whole other ballgame. Oh, sure. But the very nature of a sequel, I mean, at least especially in the time period we're talking about, it's, you know, it's, it's come about usually because the first movie was well-received or considered to be good and, and or made money, and so they're going to go on mm -hmm. to make more of them, which sometimes works out okay, and sometimes it does not. Yeah. <laughs> But I think your average horror movie doesn't tend to get a lot of resources put into a part two, at least. Oh, man. But if part two does really well, then part three will get more attention. And uh, that's the case with um, Nightmare on Elm Street, certainly. But we'll get to that. Uh, the first one that I thought we would do is The Howling. Part three of The Howling. The Howling. Part two. They are here. They are real. One man will learn to love them. One will try to save them. I wonder how many more of them there are out there. But others will seek to destroy them. Amuna! Help me! Change me! Are they freaks of nature? Or creatures from hell? According to these readings, he should be dead! The Howling 3. So The Howling is a movie I'd heard the title a million times watching Scream. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, sure, yeah. I mean, that's how I heard about that movie, was the fact that they discussed The Howling. And didn't they say that E.T.'s mom was in it? Which is a very funny way to say that, because, like, yes. D. Wallace is not E.T.'s mother. But I think that, you know, obviously they mean the mom from E.T. I digress. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'd always heard The Howling, and I just... I knew it was a werewolf movie. That's all I knew. I assumed it was like, oh, werewolves come to a town. Like, I had no idea. And so I was really excited that we were going to cover part three because I knew that meant I'd have to watch the first one and the second one and the third one. And now I have seen three Howling movies. But how many are there? There's more. Actually, I don't even know how many there are. There are um, a lot. Eight, Ooh. I believe. Wow. I think I read that today. I wonder if four through eight are as different from each other as one, two, and three are. <laughs> I hear they're all pretty different from each other. Wow. But I just heard that like while researching for part three, mm -hmm. which is as far as we go on this one. Had you seen The Howling 3? You had, right? Yeah, I think I went two, three, one. Wow, okay. But I'd, I'd seen the ending of one somewhere in there. Mm. That great ending that just ends on a, you know, how do you like your burger? <laughs> and then the whole closing credits is on a frying piece of meat. Yeah. Which was uh, always very appealing to go see how they got to that point. But how did you, as a first-time watcher, how did you like Joe Dante's 
the Howling Part One. I liked it, especially getting through Part Three and then reflecting upon Part One again, because I think inevitably when I went to read a little bit about Part Three, people would compare it to the original and to Part Two, and in doing so, would often talk about mm. Part One as being slow-paced and boring and not that engaging. And I don't know that I agree. I like the simplicity of part one. I think D. Wallace is very good. I was not expecting the way that the movie opened with her like going to meet a serial killer. Yeah. I was like, okay, I am in. This is interesting to me. And I found her to be, I don't know, at times a little bit of um stereotypical like female character the way she was written that she's a little weaker and like scared but mostly pretty damn brave and cool and um i liked it i would probably watch it again to show it to somebody if they hadn't seen it which is i think always a good marker speaking of things you've seen for the first time you just saw network for the first time i did i did and i mean i can't say for sure for sure but things that came after network that dealt with like the newsroom and the sort of cynical approach to bring us the news, I always feel was uh, influenced by Network. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, Network is such a tour de force. They both kind of end the same way in one sense. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. Somebody getting shot on the air. Yeah, 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 weird. Wow, what are you kids watching? The newsletter's turned into a werewolf. I found the ending to The Howling, I mean, the beginning really surprised me, and then the ending surprised me even more. And I found it to be really, like, refreshing and just kind of odd. And I love that juxtaposition of the news and, like, the modern world and, like, technology with the ancient werewolf thing. Like, that's always very cool to me. Once it really gets where it's going, it is a lot of werewolves who find themselves unable to function really well in in Mm -hmm. this modern time. But they're being led sort of guru style, kind of self-improvement style, which um, the uh, 70s Invasion of the Body Snatchers took some stabs at. I love that movie so much. That culture in the 70s of like, I'm okay, you're okay. Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place lies an experience too terrifying for words. So she goes on like a self-improvement retreat. Yeah. For her mental health after getting shocked by a werewolf transformation that she can't remember. Mm-hmm. But right. it turns out the colony, isn't that what they call it? Like the colony, it's occupied by werewolves who are just trying to uh, get by yeah. and coexist among people and eat cows instead of people. But uh, it's pretty hard to keep that lid on. We should have stuck to the old way raising cattle for our feed. Where's the food in that? But we need the expo- Oh, fuck it. I mean, I'm so do it. <laughs> and so much of horror in general is about the demon inside, like, you know, human beings and their innate violence. They're the things inside of us that scare us. And any werewolf movie is going to be an even more on-the-nose version of that. But what I think is interesting about... Um, well, you talk about the colony from the first Howling movie, and then mm-hmm. in both Howling 2 and 3, it expands further to these groups of werewolves who are trying to exist, coexist with humans to one degree or another, whether, you know, how much they're trying to stay under the radar. And that that's a, adds an, another interesting element to it.
the Changeo heads, the technology that they were sort of in a race with an American werewolf in London to get out. Mm, right. It's what Rick Baker had signed on for and then left so he could go do an American werewolf in London. I remember you telling me that trivia when we talked about an American werewolf in London and I hadn't yet seen the howling so I didn't have I didn't have that context and it was really interesting watching it with that in mind. As far as the change your heads the howling beat an American werewolf in London to the box office. It came out first. Really? So people got to see the transformation that style like like the bladders the bone crunching, that sort of agonizing change into a werewolf. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. They got it a little earlier. So, Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, <laughs> picks up in the same same universe, same scenario. I guess it starts like that week, sort of. Though I don't believe it, it contains any footage from the first one. They sort of redo the on-air shooting at the end. Yeah, that confused me a little bit. And then I was just like, oh, okay, so I'm just supposed to be okay with the fact this isn't D. Wallace. But I understand it's the same character. Yeah. It took me a second, though. I was like, oh, because I don't know. I didn't realize it would be a almost chronologically direct sequel, like exactly pick up where the first film left off. It's the rocky, shocking, new way of horror. Howling to... So the uh, stars of this one is like her friend that like works at the station Mm -hmm. and like her brother, who's like a Wyoming sheriff or something like that. Montana. Yeah. Can I also just say that the title Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf is so fantastic. Uh It's so specific and funny. Like I didn't realize it was subtitled that. So then when I rented the movie and I started it and then that title card came up, I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is great. Yeah, it is really on the nose. Mm-hmm. And the poster for the movie is great. Yeah, the poster for the first one is like wolf claws slashing through a little mm-hmm. bit. And this one, it's mostly slashed out. And it's a beautiful woman who I guess is supposed to be uh, Sybil Danning, mm. who also stars in this as like a werewolf queen. I have always heard the name Sybil Danning, but I had no idea like who she was or what she was famous for. So that was cool. My first Sybil Danning. Finally, we meet again. For the last time. Stefan, you never could resist me. And Christopher Lee. Wow. My gosh, Christopher Lee is in this as sort of a Van Helsing for werewolves. He's very good, as always. And I saw her sit upon a hairy beast, and she held forth a golden chalice full of the filthiness of her fornication. This one came out in 1985, and it is so very 1985. Like, it's really just, like, feeling its 80s. Yeah, I might say that that's one of the best things about it. And they're not shy about, like, taking Christopher Lee and putting him in a punk club. That was outrageous, and I can't believe we're gifted with that. He got these, like, really 80s sunglasses. And then it doesn't stop there. When you go to the old country and uh, Sybil Danning gets, like, rejuvenated from an old woman... She's immediately wearing this, like, 80s leather outfit. Oh, yeah. The costumes are crazy. Also with sunglasses. Yep. Indoors at night. Why do you wear sunglasses at night? Because when you're cool, the sun shines on you 24 hours a day. Some of it actually did film in Los Angeles, which is where the first one takes place. But a lot of it filmed in Czechoslovakia, which 
it was great for those like um like I think they were in one of those cathedrals where it's like all full of skulls and bones. Yeah. In one scene. And that was, you know, great production value. And then just the um old country look of the place with like its cobblestone streets and its old buildings. Yeah, I was not expecting a howling movie to take us there. It was kind of cool. Maybe the year before Amadeus had filmed in Prague. Mm. And so it was kind of like the place to go for like old country because it kind of hadn't changed in a few decades. Yeah. You know, they were still behind the Iron Curtain. Right. They still had like KGB representatives working with the film productions. Jenny, what did he say? You said your sister is a werewolf. And a lot of why I'm sort of like steering us to the part three of this franchise is because it sort of stands alone among horror movies and among howling movies. But it's also an example of a part three that was better than the part two. So I would like to express just how odd and disconnected and kind of cheesy part two was. Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf. Yeah, I'm with you there. That said, I don't know that I would rewatch three before I'd rewatch two. Okay. I think the the bonkersness of two, the very 80s-ness of it, might draw me back to it more quickly than to The Howling 3, which I just didn't see coming. Like, there's so many things about part three that I was like, whoa, we're in Australia? What is happening? You know, we'll get into it. And I'm not saying I didn't enjoy three, but I thought that there were just things about two that were so delightfully 80s and delightfully weird that they just went for that I was like, okay, this is fun. And in fact, the song that I believe plays in the end credits as well, but plays in the club. I was like, this is a bop. I, like, I was really into that song. It was like a really fun mm. 80s horror movie song. I was really feeling it, personally. Speaking of taking their strengths and repeating it, there is one bit... Well, first of all, in Howling Part 1, something that it had that, that really distinguished it was a werewolf sex scene <laughs> between uh, the husband, the real life husband mm-hmm. of D. Wallace Stone. Yeah. And the kind of like a uh, nature, kind of witchy yeah. werewolf yeah. woman who like seduces him and bites him. Anyways, they have werewolf sex. Yes, they do. So like as they get to it, they get hairier and their teeth get sharper. And then before it's over, it just like turns to animation yeah. for the final bit. Yeah. It's kind of fun. It's kind of cartoony. Yeah. But I don't think it's anything that audiences had particularly seen up till then. Mm-hmm. Not much, anyways. So, you're making a sequel. You're going to need more. Yeah. So, Werewolf Three-Way. Yeah. Which... And then almost Werewolf Orgy. Kind of. Yes. Yeah. Well, like the Three-Way, it's mostly just a lot of snarling at each other. And writhing. You know? Snarling and writhing. Snarling and writhing, yeah. <laughs> Whilst being a little bit hairy. Yes. <laughs> It is interesting, sort of like as you're watching that stuff, it's like how how erotic does it feel the hairier they get? Like, where's the dividing line between like, ooh, this is really sexy and everybody's a little hairy. Oh, no. And then the more like wolves they look, the <laughs> less okay it is to feel <laughs> to feel like it's sexy. The wolfier they are, the randier they are. Yeah, well, that's true. 
Yeah, I'm just talking as a viewer. Like, how are we supposed to feel? (laughs) And how (laughs) guilty should we feel about how sexy we feel it is, depending on how hairy they are? Hmm. I've definitely thought about this too much. Yeah, sounds like you're into it. (laughs) So, if the sequel more is better, you know, throw in another partner. Werewolf sex, werewolf right. orgy. Hey, it's part two. Hey, you, you like this one song? We'll play it over and over again. Or at least twice more, Yeah, I suppose. I didn't really count. But something that has been counted is Sybil Danning at one point just like rips off her leather studded top mm-hmm. to expose her nude breasts. And that's once during the narrative, right? The director says that like for that sort of end credits best of montage that they had which would also include the band that howl song it would also just sort of show all of the money shots of like transformations and kind of werewolf moments and the director says that in his cut of that ending montage he showed her like ripping open her uh leather vestments three times total and that the producers were like that is a great idea and increased it to 17 times Wow. So if you stick around through the credits, you get it 17 times. You get it enough that you stop you stop caring. <laughs> After 12, maybe. So the director of that was named Philip or Philippe. It's got an E at the end. I think it's Philippe. Mora. I think it's Philippe Mora. Philippe Mora, who this is kind of a, a one of a kind thing. It distinguishes itself, I think. I've never heard of this before. He was displeased with how Howling 2 came out Mm. and wanted to sort of get a redo by, on his own, getting the author of the Howling books, which really not much from the books really makes it into the movies, but still, the title's there. He got the rights to the Howling 3 title. And to quote him, and there's a commentary on the DVD, he said he wanted to do it and this time the mistakes would be his own. You know? It might not be great, but the parts of it that aren't great will be his fault and not a production company's fault. He felt there was a lot of interference. I don't know how great that movie could have been, uh, part two, if he'd gotten his way. I really can't say. It had a lot of great elements, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was kind of uh, choppy and and weird, Yeah, which can be a compliment. Uh, Folks, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, watch it. You'll know what I'm trying to get at. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what we're really here to talk about, now that we've laid some groundwork, is part three, which came out in 1987. So, 1987, he is an Australian director. Oh, okay. That makes uh, sense. He worked inside of Australia and outside of Australia. But as long as he was doing it his way, he said, well, let's do something I've never seen before as a filmmaker and as an Australian. Let's have a Australian werewolf. Yeah, movie. why do they only gotta be in London or America? Yeah, and what's more Australian than marsupials? You can say that again. And I found that the tagline for this movie, or at least one of them, was yeah. just when you thought it was safe to go down under. Nice. And considering the number of like weird insects and bugs um, and jellyfish and everything that exists to kill you in Australia. I'm not sure that I've ever felt it was safe to go down under, but I digress again. Hmm. Um, just kidding. I've always wanted to go to Australia. Australia is really, it's really its own thing. It is. And I, I also read that this movie is kind of considered to be in a category of 
Ozploitation movies, as in Aussie exploitation, which I I never yeah. uh, I, it makes me want to delve into more of, just because I didn't quite realize that was a category. Every now and then, an exploitation film, usually if it has very bankable or American elements, will make its way over to the U.S. Well, and wasn't Jamie Lee Curtis in a movie that's set in Australia or filmed in Australia? Yes. Road games. Yes, and I haven't seen it, but I always, I, it's always been on my list, so I wonder if that falls under the category. Like, what makes it exploitation? Well, it's more exploitation movies in Australia, mm-hmm. but they also manage to exploit the Australianness of it all by having elements you can really only get in Australia. Yeah, I was going to say, Howling 3 really does that. Like, in this one, the indigenous peoples and the marsupialness of it all. Yeah. And very specifically, the movie starts with a little um, poke at the MGM logo, you know, like, like the lion roar. Mm-hmm. So this one has, to you and I, actually to most people, uh, a very strange creature with a long snout that's just full of teeth. And its proper name is a thylacine, but it was known uh, under two names, Tasmanian tiger and Tasmanian wolf. It's pretty cute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you look at it, it looks like science fiction because we'd never really seen an animal quite like this. And that's because it's been extinct since 1936. Wow. It's one of the few marsupial predators and it would kill off sheep. And so the farmers would kill off the Tasmanian wolves. And so there's only that little bit of film to kind of show one in action, show how like live it is walking around and really show you those jaws when it like just yawns mm-hmm. the jaws are incredible yeah so like what could be more australian than this indigenous animal that's no longer around and marsupial <laughs> we were born from him he's the phantom he's the lion the tiger the hyena and the wolf so it takes a while for it to sort of get out to the viewer But the shtick is that when the last one of these died, the great spirit of the Tasmanian wolf imbued itself into these people. And now they're like lycanthropic marsupials Mm -hmm. who just live in the outback, live kind of by their own code, live very clannishly. Yeah. But things uh, kick off when one of them wants to leave. And that's when we meet our heroine. Yes. I think I can smell a talent here. Can you act like an animal? Yes. You'll be perfect, darling. She's very good. Her name's Imogen Imogen Ansley. I don't know how to do that without an Australian accent. Playing the part of Jaboa. Jaboa Jaboa. Yes. But yeah, she's very good. Imogen Ansley is very good in this bonkers role. I mean, the things that happen in this movie, I really do have to commend, I think, most all of the actors. There's one or two where I'm like, eh, but... The vast majority of them, given the subject matter and the things that happen in this movie, are really committing 150% to some pretty crazy shit. They lean into the bonkers of it all. They do. They do. And if if they didn't, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And I think it does work. Don't be afraid of me, my child. I want to help you. I don't need any help. You should not run away from home. I don't like home. Why, child? Because my stepfather tried to rape me and he's a werewolf. She's sort of being uh, promised to her stepfather. Yeah, that's gross. I'd want to leave too. So she takes off to the big city 
She's never been outside of her town of Flo, mm-hmm. which it had to be pointed out to me is wolf backwards. Oh, yeah. I noticed it on the sign. It's like later in the movie when they're in that town. Yeah. And the camera's looking at the back of the sign. And I was like, it looks like wolf. At least Flo is its own word because like Nilbog. Yeah. <laughs> Nilbog. It's godless spelled backwards. Yes. So she's from the tiny town of Flo. She makes it to the big city, Sydney, where she's sitting on a park bench. And a young man who I had to like listen to a different podcast to realize, I think he was supposed to be American. Mm-hmm. I have trouble picking up on like Americans sometimes in foreign films because I don't hear them as anything unusual. I definitely understood that right away, that he was American. Oh, I didn't pick up that he didn't have an Australian accent. I pay such probably over, I pay probably an exceeding amount of attention to accents. So yeah, for whatever reason, it definitely read to me that way. Even watching it while taking notes, I didn't realize the guy who was supposed to be the president of the United States was supposed to even be American, let alone the president. Mm-hmm. I thought he was like the president of like a university. Yeah. Who was then like approving the other guy to go find werewolves. Do you think there's something about the just inherent slightly oddness to a film that's made not in your native land that kind of knocks you off your balance to inherently understanding and reading certain things that are going on. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, even if things aren't extremely different, it's just kind of like there are just a a lot of films, and I feel like horror films often are this way because they're often trying to, like, do a movie on a budget and shooting in a town in Canada or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm phrasing this well, but, like, just that inherent slight oddness makes it harder for you to, like, pick up on all kinds of stuff. Yeah. No, no, you're you're right. It's, It's really just sort of, like, civil planning kind of things it's just like oh the curbs look weird the guardrail looks weird yes thank you that's exactly right i think that's what i'm trying to get at it's like the, um, street lights like look different the frighteners yes yes the frighteners is a great example it was, it was just a little off that's in new zealand right it's in new zealand but it's just supposed to be coastal america it does not feel like it at all just enough to give you pause right yeah so i, I guess you know unless they show me like an exterior of the white house before showing me the guy who's supposed to be president. <laughs> right. I just thought he was president of a university. Yes. Jack likes you. He's one of the best horror directors around. What's a horror director? Haven't you ever seen a horror movie before? They're great. So she gets discovered for a movie, Shapeshifters Part 8. <sighs> so it was kind of playing on the idea of sequels. And it is a movie that seems to be entirely filmed next to one fountain in a park. Yeah, what the hell's the plot of this movie? And during the day, too. Yeah. A lot of this movie actually takes place in full daylight. Not much of it takes place at night. As a horror film, it's Mm -hmm. unusual. Yeah. Also, I've been following a Twitter account, and it just shows, like, pictures of horror films where some key scenes are taking place in, like, broad daylight. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, uh, it's an Instagram. uh, Sunlit Horror. Sunlit Horror. Which is uh, its own niche. And uh, kind of interesting when you start looking for it. And then another great visual in this is the werewolf nuns. They're not really nuns, but they go after Jaboa Jaboa. They can like smell her, they find her, you know, by using their werewolf smelling abilities. Yeah, I think there's something very scary about the idea of 
your werewolf relatives coming after you disguised as nuns so that they can like slip amongst the regular folk Mm -hmm. and like in a grounded way that's very scary but then the places that goes with those nuns yeah (laughs) where i'm like what's the tone of this movie the tone is kind of goofy and also sentimental by the end i guess so yeah and it was pg-13 yeah such a weird movie i have to imagine there are a lot of like people who saw this as young people and it really affected their movie taste in big ways like i can't imagine seeing certain scenes from this movie as a kid i I saw it when it first came to the uh, table you did oh certainly and i had already in school learned how kangaroos and and marsupials in general have their young Uh while still a fetus this tiny kangaroo must leave the womb and grope its way unaided across its mother's belly to her pouch if it falls or falters, it will die. So I got it when I saw it, just on an academic level. Yes, I think we should just say, because we kind of danced around it, but if you're listening and you haven't seen The Howling 3, you should definitely go watch it. But we are referring to the scene where the lead character, Jaboa, she's become pregnant and the baby comes out of her very hairy vagina area and mm-hmm. crawls up her stomach into her marsupial pouch, which is... Marshall, you're you're correct. It's what young Marshall learned is the way that marsupials, you know, they have mm-hmm. their they birth the little fetus and it crawls up into the marsupial pouch where it finishes growing. And yeah. to see a human like a human-ish person go through that process was really wild. Like I was watching that yeah. scene like are you kidding me? And it was so I don't even have an adjective for it. Uh, when she like licks the palm of her hand to sort of like get the pouch ready. Yes. It felt like no one ever taught her how to do that. Mm. It was just sort of like one of those. Well, those instinctive like, animal things. mother things. Right. Like yeah. animals don't verbally teach each other how, you know, like the first time a cat gives birth, no one's teaching it what to do. It's just an instinct. Yes, absolutely. And it looked like she was sort of uh, going on part of that. Uh, backtracking a bit because there's a part that I want us to just sort of enjoy a part together. Which is, she gets to know, what's the guy's name? Like Don or Rob or something American. Oh gosh, what is his name? Donnie. Donnie. Okay, so American Donnie finds out she's never been to a movie before or has shoes. So he takes care of both. Yeah. And he takes her to see, it came from Uranus. Yeah, which is a movie you and I were in, kind of. (laughs) Yeah. Cat and I. We're in a movie within a movie, which is what this is, for uh, I Was a Teenage Wear Skunk. Yes. I haven't contacted Neil, who uh, directed the film. I think it's just a big coincidence. Yeah, I mean, there's no way only one person has ever come up with that joke. It's a pretty easy joke. Yeah, for sure. Where's he from? Uranus? Get it? Which is also the uh, director having a still extra bit of fun with the idea of sequels and cheesy horror films. And so he got to put more outrageous special effects into this movie within a movie. Right. But as much as The Howling and The Howling 2 had sex, Howling 3 is more about mating. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I also wanted to point out the super sweaty sex. After uh, Jaboa and Donnie go on their date, they are just, both of them just covered in sweat. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. Sweatiest it's, sex. It's quite uncomfortable. Well, 
I kind of felt like, at least from her end, she's very sweaty because it's like animalistic and she's kind of an animal. And aren't we all? But she's a little bit more of an animal than I think the rest of us. Sure. Well, flashing lights kind of brings it out in them, mm-hmm. which is why later at the movie's rap party, there's like a strobe light. Yeah. And she changes a little bit and then she goes to Donnie and she's like, sex now. Yeah. And so I think if the light brings out the wolf in her, the wolf in her brings out the wanting to mate mm-hmm. in her. Mm-hmm. Not just do it. But mate. Oh, yeah. There's an end goal in mind here. Same with, um. so there's another plot. There's a Russian ballerina who's come to Sydney. Yeah. And she's been like psychically drawn by the male werewolf sort of chief back in flow. They say like she's come all the way from Russia. She's going to add to the bloodline. So they're looking to, you know, not only get it on, but preserve their race mm-hmm. through like the introduction of like a new werewolf from like the Russian strain of things uh, who is not marsupial. Right. So even within all these werewolves, they make a mention of all the different countries that have werewolves, and they mention Los Angeles. So it's like, this could be set in the same universe as Howling Part 1 and 2. They're not ruling it out, but right. down under, they're marsupials. <laughs> down under. We plan to go in at dawn. Look, this is an incredible opportunity to study an alien species. Please, try to minimize casualties. We'll minimize. Don't get emotional, Beckmeyer. Too many people have died already. But how many of them have we killed over the years? They're nearly extinct. I mean, I think we should probably talk about the other main subplot of Howling 3, the sociologist who is, like, trying to study them and protect the werewolves. Yes. There's, like, this element in the Howling 3 of what is the right thing to do here with a race of like half wolf, half humans, marsupial humans, are they dangerous and they should be wiped out? Or are they, should they be allowed to live in peace among us? And using the Tasmanian wolf as like a metaphor, they never say anything about Australian and Tasmanian specifically, Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as many Aboriginals as as got killed during the colonization of Australia, I'm of the understanding that Tasmania in particular got hit really hard. Mm. Like nearly wiped out as a people. And although they stick to the plight of the Tasmanian wolf in this movie, I think it's kind of like in Avatar, how it's so much paralleling Native Americans, but nobody ever stops and says anything. Right. It looms so large. And I think especially by an Australian filmmaker, it probably looms so large, it doesn't even need to be mentioned. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Because it doesn't get mentioned, but they're also talking about wiping out werewolves. And from the past, the government was behind it, but it all got covered up that they knew about werewolves, but they've been kind of hunting them through the years, which then lends a lot of sympathy towards these werewolf characters and an Aboriginal character who I really like. Yeah. G'day. Want to put a shrimp on the barbie? Christ, mate, you scared us. Scared some soldiers before. The bastards nearly shot me. Anyone else live around here? Oh, not another idiot. I've had bloody idiots asking me all day if I've seen Wolfman. And as they head into the outback to hide from, like, the military, the professor character, he goes from studying them to helping them. Yeah. He kind of falls in love with the Russian ballerina werewolf. What a sociologist, anthropologist thing to do. Like, have such sympathy for the peoples and then fall in love with one of them and decide to throw it all away to live with her and mate with her. Yeah, I'll bet there's a beautiful little sweetie pants underneath all that hair. 
probably one of my like favorite bits from any movie. I, I guess when you're young, and especially in a sequel, you know, no one dies forever in movies and sequels. There's always something that can bring them back. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Or even if they do die, there's just the notion that they'll go on to heaven or an afterlife or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But just a great moment, I think, when uh, the one character is dying, the Aboriginal fellow, who's also a werewolf, Jaboa is kind of uh, comforting him as he died. Kendi is the name of the character. Yeah. And she says, you're going to become a river and then a rainbow and then a mountain. And she just goes, no way. I'm just going to die. And, ah. Oh. <sighs> yeah, he's a really um, lovable character. Just to prove how young I was when I did see this movie. Of all the things in it, that one really uh, punched me. Mm. Not unlike earlier in my life when uh, I had seen Blackbeard's Ghost, which I took you to see last yes. October. From a company that just kept making Herbie the Lovebug movies, uh, Disney, to at the end, Blackbeard's Ghost turns to Dean Jones and he's like, so long. We will not meet again. It's like, whoa, what? What? <laughs> yeah, hard it's lessons so final. for kids. Yeah. It's so final. Although it really isn't in The Howling because he comes back sort of stop motion skeleton style. Yeah. Which we'll see again in uh, Nightmare 3. Yeah, we will. Harry. Yes. You've been so good to me. Well, we had to make a gun. Well, it's more than that. I think I love you. And the two, like, human man, werewolf women couples just sort of go off and make a life for themselves and just kind of live happily and privately in the outback. Mm -hmm. And then this you don't really, you don't really get in horror movies much, and you certainly don't get it in a franchise, which is... They go 20 years later. Like, like, yeah. who makes that kind of time jump? Yeah. Suddenly it was 25 years later. I was old. But they do, just because we've become invested in these characters and their happiness, and we want to know, but do they make it? Right. And it's like, yeah, they do. And uh, somehow in the future, the governments become okay with werewolves. So they're like, hey, come back to society. Hmm. And then it ends at what's basically the Oscars, because... Jabo and Donnie go off and change their names and become like a really big director and actress. Yeah. It's so weird. It gets so weird it by is. that point. It's like, what is happening? And and also, if they were that famous, then why wouldn't he have known who they were from seeing them in the movies? He's aware of who she is. The, yeah. the son comes and he's like, she changed her name to this. And he's like, the famous actress? It's like, how do you know who that <laughs> famous actress is, but you haven't seen her face? Like, what is happening? I don't know. There's... There's some pop culture people whose names I just know, mm. like Sybil Danning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. That's fair. Let's say. And Donnie, he grew a mustache and wears a hat. So, you know, he's unrecognizable. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many people I'd like to thank. My husband, Sully, and my son, Zach. And then at the Oscars being presented by Dame Edna, mm-hmm. the people taking photographs makes her transform. And so like everybody's at home watching her transform. Again, that is another thing that pulled me out of it. Just the fact that it's like if she's a famous actress, she's not prepared for flashing bulbs. This has never happened before in her career. She's never walked a red carpet or been on a stage and had people taking pictures. Come on. She would have had a contingency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
but they are sort of uh, calling back, I think, to part one, the on-air transformation and revelation. And then the final shot is there's the professor and then there's like his other professor buddy he'd been working mm -hmm. with and he's watching them on TV and then like up behind him is a photograph of the Tasmanian mm -hmm. wolf and it kind of feels like that creature that doomed animal has had its revenge um, any final thoughts on the howlings you know I'm ultimately glad I watched those three movies Certainly, there were things I'd never seen before. I enjoyed them. I mean, I'll never forget the marsupial birth scene. That's for sure. Indeed. Yeah. And I can't believe you were a young man when you saw that. That's, uh, that's truly wild. And it stands alone, I think, in the franchise and as a part three, where part threes are usually just sort of like watered down versions of part one and part two. And I, I sent you that clip of uh, Roger Corman talking about making sequels mm -hmm. and he just sort of got a graph of how it would make a little less money each time and then when it gets too close to the amount of money they spend then it's time to wrap up the carnosaur series and usually i, I think that's the way you know part two not as great as part one yeah. part three not as great as part two but um in those instances where it spikes back to life due to a uh, passion or whatever factors someone's got a, a more um is more personally invested i think that can make all the difference. When you have a, a person that's personally invested in the outcome, like uh, the director Mora was, where he felt he'd really stumbled with part two or allowed or been the victim of studio meddling, that now he was out to do better, mm -hmm. and if not do better, really swing for the fences right. while doing so. Right. Which uh, I think gave us a very unique movie. Yes, it sure did. So, Kat. Marshall. Had you ever seen the sequel to The Exorcist, The Exorcist 2, The Heretic? I had not. Is it because you had nope. heard that it was bad? I had not really heard anything about The Exorcist 2. I had okay. heard that part three was good. Mm -hmm. I had heard that there was a really famous jump scare in part three. Sure, sure. And that's all I knew. And I had never heard anything about part two. And then as I started lightly researching, because we were going to be doing this, that's when I started to hear rumblings about part two being, in the public estimation, kind of bad. But yeah, no, I just, I really hadn't been exposed very much to the sequels. And I wonder if in part it's because I just had steered clear a bunch because I just had a really hard time with the first movie for a long time. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was probably a lot older than you when I saw it. I think your brother showed it to you. Yeah. I was you very were... young when I saw the Exorcist. See, I saw part three first just because it was on cable in like 91. Hmm. And then I saw part one cause it's the Exorcist, you know, you'll find your way there. Yeah. But part two for a while, I just kind of figured it was bad because I hadn't heard anything at all. 
right. no recommendations, but also no no one was saying anything bad about it. It just no one talked about it whatsoever. Right. It's actually kind of a poor way to go about it, you know, when you don't hear anything, assuming something's bad. Yeah. But th- that's kind of the boat I was in. And then I started to hear that it wasn't very good, so I just kind of gave it a pass. But for this, I discovered, uh, no, it's not good. I will say, by the end of part two, I think I had really gained an appreciation for just how different and kind of big and weird it was. And I didn't get done with part two and go, whew, that was bad. I got done with part two and I was like, wow, weird. That was like a little bloated. I felt like it was far too long. Okay. And, you know, there was some stuff I could have trimmed down or done without. And there were some really completely ridiculous moments that I couldn't believe. Like, you know, Reagan saying, I was possessed by a demon. Don't worry, he's gone. Like, just really ridiculous stuff. But, again, like this is the other thing. It's kind of like how I felt about The Howling 2. Exorcist 2, there was a um, really, like, 80s-ness to it that... Well, it was, I think, 77. I'm sorry. A I guess, 70s-ness yes. to it. A 70s It was being of its time, at least the way it looked. There was all that, like chrome and mirror yes so like the design of the psychological testing facility was so intensely attempting to be something it's it's almost like futuristic so this ain't your grandmother's hospital exactly and we have all these moving doors and these you know windows that cloud up and you can't see through this yeah. and all this technology and these sort of like hexagonal glass offices yeah. I want to say. Yes. It made things visually interesting. There were like always like kids in the background like playing with large balls or you know like doing puzzles and stuff. And the sort of like Reagan living at the top of a skyscraper with like doves mm-hmm. and it definitely at least was trying to do something different. That said when you compare two to like the splendor and simplicity of one, then you just go like, "Oh yeah, two's not very good." But that said, I I definitely didn't have a bad time watching it. Okay. I uh, enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Linda Blair, Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max Vincito, James Earl Jones, Exorcist II, The Heretic. I've been reading reviews for part two, and I got the book, the Golden Turkey Awards, the book that kind of put Plan 9 on the map as, like, the worst Uh movie. It was written probably pretty close to when Exorcist 2 came out. So they really give Exorcist 2 a hard time in that Golden Turkey book. Interesting. But too many reviews of the time point to how Linda Blair is kind of chubby. Oh. And she's not even. Ugh, that's First shitty. of all. And second of all, she was like 16 when she made it. So, hey, shut up. Yeah, this takes me back to watching the Cursed Films episode on Shudder about... Yeah. The Exorcist and how they, you know, Linda Blair was super game and like they interviewed her for it. But there were certain things that she refused to talk about, mostly kind of what it was like to be a child who was, you know, portrayed as being inhabited by a demon. And I ain't that devil. What her childhood was like as a result of that. And people kind of treated her like she was evil. Everyone lost their minds over part one. Well, then you go on to part two and the movie is notably not as good. And then she's going through like being a teenager and people are talking about her chubby cheeks. And I did also feel a and this is like in part the writing and in part the performance and the directing and everything. But 
it felt like there was a concerted effort to kind of make her a more of a woman and a little sexy and all yeah. of that. And it's a tough balance to strike. And part of that just becomes weird because she's a kid in the first movie. And, um, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for her. They were trying to probably push her to be kind of sexy just because, you know, they're trying to yeah. sell a movie and they can't count on Richard totally. Burton to bring sexiness in. <laughs> right. Well, she's, she's radiant. She's lovely. Yeah, she is lovely. But then then you get things like that, like machine that she gets hooked up to so they can go into each other's minds. Yeah, I love the pseudoscience of it. It's yeah. like, we're just going to flash this light in your face a yeah. bunch. And then you'll be able to enter each other's minds. But, you know, um, it's got some champions. Uh, apparently, uh, Martin Scorsese liked the movie. Oh, cool. Tarantino likes the movie. I mean, it's a big movie. There's, you know, there's a lot that happens in it. Pauline Kael liked it, and she didn't like part one. She mm. specifically didn't like the exploitation of Linda Blair in part one. Mm-hmm. And so I guess now that she gets, you know, to show up in, like, pretty dresses and a nice hat, and she never has to vomit up any pea soup. Right. Or get tied to a bed, I don't believe, Mm-mm. in part two. It, it treats her a lot better, and I guess that maybe uh, scored the movie some points for people who were uh, very sympathetic to the uh, Reagan character. Yeah, it gives Reagan a lot of agency. She becomes a fighter, you know, in a way that we don't get to see as much in the first movie. Yeah. But it's also just bonkers. Yeah, it's bonkers. I think that's part of why I came away from it being like, okay. Because by the end of it, like, it's really insane. And I was like, okay, well, at least it shot for the, you know, if you shoot for the moon, at least you'll land among the stars or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that saying is. I wrote down, like, nowadays, uh, compared to 1977, which was still, like, a decade before even Rain Man came out, autism wasn't really anything that the public knew about Mm. in any serious way, not like today. So when she kind of cures a girl's autism just through, like, talking to her and puts the whammy on her with her life force or whatever the explanation is, as a modern viewer, I was like, oh, is that all it takes? You just sort of... (laughs) You snapped her out of it. Yeah. I know the movie meant well, but um, that's not a part that aged great. Yeah. And then at the end, the house. They use the house as a character, which is Mm -hmm. like something that the Elm Street series certainly does. So you go back to the house and they brought back the babysitter or the like. It's the mom's assistant who sort of served as like nanny for Reagan. Yeah. She's still at it. They Uh couldn't get the mom back. Yeah, mom's away filming a movie, right? Mm-hmm. She's on location. But by the end, the house gets destroyed. Like, that's the site of the showdown. They go back to the house. Yeah. And it just gets wrecked. And then she goes off and sort of like, and now she is like a chosen healer that I think like Richard Burton must guide is kind of the deal. Yeah. I do believe that that's the case. Yeah. 17 years ago, an extraordinary motion picture terrified us with a story of a little girl possessed by Satan. On August 17th, the creator of the original Exorcist brings you fear beyond your darkest nightmares because the priest who saved you is now the greatest evil of all. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. Now playing at a theater near you, rated restricted. So... When part three was made, it mostly just doesn't mention part two. Any more than Howling 3 mentions Howling 2. Any more than Nightmare 3 mentions Nightmare 2. They just kind of gloss over it. They were like, uh, you know. But they don't say it didn't happen. They don't go that far. 
They just don't say that it did happen. Yep. So when Exorcist 3 starts, it brings back tubular bells, which why they didn't have that in part two is beyond me. Yeah. Because that music is almost a character. Yeah, although in rewatching the first movie, I realized it wasn't in it as much as I remembered. Mm. It's really used kind of selectively. Okay. Which I like. They only use it in the beginning of part three. Yep. Because why wouldn't you? It's associated with the franchise, and it's awesome. But as much as they show the stairs, and they show the stairs like a couple of times, they like flash back to like Father Karras falling down the stairs, mm-hmm. but they don't show the house. They never kind of pan the camera over to where the house is in relation to the stairs and be like, hey, here's the house, because the house in part two fell down or uh, blew up or something. So I went back and I read the book for The Exorcist. And I've never seen The Exorcist, what do they call it? Is it Redux? In like 2000, they took all the deleted scenes and put them in? Yeah, I saw it in theaters. Okay. Yeah. I saw all of those scenes in the deleted scenes portion of like the 25th anniversary DVD. Very cool. And they, they were all in there, including the ending. Uh, Exorcist 1 ends with Father Dyer the like friend of Karis looking down the steps and just, you know, being challenged mm-hmm. is how I always took it, you know, just by like the existence of the devil and the loss of his friend and, and all that. And just cuts there and, you know, starts with tubular bells and it's a great ending. But originally, and they stuck it back in after he looks down the steps, he wanders a little further. And then the detective character, detective Kinderman kind of approaches him in sort of a, uh, this will be the beginning of a beautiful friendship kind of way. He's like, hey, uh, Father, do you like movies? Sure. Well, I got passes, you know. In fact, I got a pass to the crest tomorrow night. Would you like to go? What's playing? Wuthering Heights. So you get like a kind of a happy moment at the end of the film. Right. Because like, oh, now the priest and the detective are hanging out and it looks like they're going to be buddies. Mm-hmm. And they both have the loss of a, a guy they respected in common with each other. So part three really picks up with that friendship. Yeah. Part three is directed by the guy who wrote the book. Yep. William Peter Blatty. Blatty, yeah. Um, Coincidence, like like we've been planning this episode for a while, but like two weeks ago on um, The Last Drive-In with Joe Mm -hmm. Bob Briggs, one of the movies he covered was Exorcist 3. So I'm all full of facts. (laughs) More than just what I got from reading online and just watching the film. So apparently uh, Blatty was brought in with the director of part one, who is uh, Friedkin or Frankenheimer? Friedkin. (sighs) Uh, Friedkin, yeah. Friedkin, Uh yeah. And they pitched what would sort of be the basis for part three as a potential part two. And Warner Brothers passed and Blatty went off and wrote, because it was too much of like a police procedural by that point. And there wasn't much of the exorcist in it. Mm -hmm. So... uh, Blatty went off and eventually turned it into a book he called Legion. And then around, you know, the late 80s, I suppose, when they start getting interested in making another Exorcist film. Finally, you know, since 77, if that gives you an idea just how uh, part two was received. Mm -hmm. You know, it took them from in 77 all the way to the late 80s to try it again. Yeah. So Blatty's like, I'll come back, I'll direct it, and I'll do it based on this book Legion. And so that's what he did. Yep. But I have to say... 
the character of Detective Kinderman is a bit changed. One, naturally, it's a completely different actor. It's George C. Scott. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who's great as the character he plays. It's just not really the Kinderman from Exorcist 1. No. A detective who's bumbling, but you get the idea he's kind of intentionally bumbling. He's, he's disarming. I don't know that I'd call George C. Scott's Kinderman bumbling. I think that in The Exorcist Part 1, the guy who was playing Kinderman kind of put it on a bit. Oh, sure. He was, he was sharper than he appears. And he's just like, yeah. It's like, oh, very surprised. Do you like to go to the movies? You know, that kind of guy. Right, right, right. Which, you know, when we meet George C. Scott, he's not only quoting Macbeth, he's like telling his fellow officers what Macbeth is about. Yeah. And that's not even a return to form because in the book, he's also that kind of bumbling guy. Mm. So do you think it's just a screenplay slash George C. Scott thing? Yeah, I think that's just where they decided to go with it now that he's the main character. Well, it's lovely. I mean, like, I mean, I'd always heard that Exorcist 3 was good, but I, I guess I assumed it was because, like, it was scary or... Something, but I was really surprised and taken aback by how much I lost myself in the friendship and the bond between yes. Father Dyer and Kinderman. Father Dyer played by Ed Flanders. And George C. Scott is just incredible. And in fact, I found this really fun. Uh, my friend Nick, who I think you might have met at least once, Marshall, mm-hmm. he's a regular listener. Nick and Kelly listen uh, sometimes on road trips, I'm told. But I texted Nick and I was like, I'm watching Exorcist 3 and like George C. Scott is just amazing. And I had texted him that right after that carp monologue. Yes. But all I said to Nick was like, George C. Scott is amazing in this movie. And he texted me back and was like, the carp monologue, right? And he was like, have you gotten to the part where he's talking about the carp? And I was like, yes, that's what I texted you. My wife's mother is visiting father. And Tuesday night she's cooking as a carp. It's a tasty fish. I... I have nothing against it. But because it's supposedly filled with impurities, she buys it live. And for three days, it's been swimming up and down in my bathtub. Completely unnecessary to the plot, but totally necessary for the relationship. Yeah. Because they're like getting together. They go see a movie. They go out to dinner. They go see It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Before (laughs) they go, they each say to somebody else, it's the anniversary of Father Karras's death. I've got to go cheer up the other guy. Oh, yes, that's right. They need each other, but they're both doing it like, ah, you know. Yeah, if I don't show up, he'll just lose it. My friend, he's probably going to be sad, so I yeah. better go, you know, yeah. help him out. And really, they're just each other's support. You're standing very close to me, Father. Have you noticed? Yes. I haven't had a bath for three days. I can't go home until the carp is asleep. The carp story? <laughs> I was prepped for that because there was a children's book to sort of showcase, like, Jewish things. Mm. Like, there were no Jewish kids in, in my school, but I had a Jewish teacher. And we were read uh, the carp in the bathtub, which is, like, their grandmother for these kids is going to fix them a carp. But first, to, like, be fresh, she uses the method of keeping it in the bathtub until it's time. So the book was kind of like teaching you about Jewish culture. It might have been written to teach Jewish kids about older Jewish culture. That's nice. I think this was like a tenement thing. Like mm-hmm. if you didn't have a refrigerator, but you did have a bathtub. Oh, wow. Then you would keep the fish fresh by literally keeping it alive. I mean, talk about fresh fish. 
Yeah. Doesn't get any fresher than that. So it, it just makes for a great moment, which I surprisingly had a little background for. Wow. I definitely did not. Also, Kinderman is Jewish, which mm. they don't lean too heavily into. I think like his mother-in-law is living with them. And so she's a little stereotypical, but that's really as far as it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where I kind of would like to sort of take a moment to talk about one of the things that I found the most delightful about this movie and interesting is, you know, when you think about the plot of what's going on and how Kinderman is this detective and he's investigating a series of murders and his friend is this priest and they have this really riveting conversation at this bar about faith and God and, and all of that and religion. And Kinderman is this very godless kind of man. And he's seen too much. Yes. He's so worn down and you see it in his eyes, how upset. And he tells that story about the kid who was found like by the docks or whatever with his head, chopped off and he's crucified and like there's a statue head on top and it's painted like a minstrel show and it's this really awful like beautifully written monologue about like death and the kind of murder he sees and what that's done to him as a man who you know he he just doesn't have faith in god anymore and i find those kinds of conversations in a movie like this like it just elevated it so much and it's not on the nose yes they're openly discussing this sort of faith stuff but it comes from a really personal they're not just having intellectual debate you know this is something that they feel differently about but they're connecting on and sort of musing on and it forces you as the viewer to think about it Bill it all works out right when? at the end of time that's soon and just movies in general I mean, I know that William Peter Blatty has a lot invested in the Catholic religion, personally. Mm. But I think there's a lot more Catholic characters in movies just because of the confessional. Right. That's the second time he dropped that Bible since she's been in there. Overall, it's also a very visual religion. You know, it looks great. It's literally full of iconography. Yep. So there's always statues and rituals and great art and clothing that goes along with it if you're going to have a scene in a church, you might as well make it a Catholic church because yep. they pop. Yeah. But the act of the confessional is great for movies. Yeah. It's great for exposition, you know, and learning about character. Yes. Yeah. Because people are literally talking about the things they've done and the way that they feel. On the stage, it would be like a soliloquy yeah. nearly because most of the time you don't even see the priest on the other side. Right. You don't necessarily need to. So a lot of characters that would otherwise be any religion wind up Catholic. Yeah. Just so they can take advantage of the confession booth. Speaking of the confession booth, I just have to say like one of the most bone chilling moments I've ever experienced in cinema took place in this movie. Like, holy, holy cow. I have a a scrupulous conscience, Father. This need to confess uh, so many things. My blood ran cold during a couple moments of this movie. As the old woman continues to uh, describe murders during her confession? Yes. Yes. It's so frightening. As a fan of radio, it almost plays like radio because you can't see her. That's right. Yeah. You can only hear her voice. Totally. And watching it again, I think at first she's... Well, I mean, we now know she was possessed by the Gemini killer. Yeah. That's a lot of the thrust of the film that we haven't even touched on. Because a lot of what's great about this, I think, is just the characters. Right. But um, I think it's, again, you know, my best comparisons are always just other movies. 
uh, the beginning of Blade Runner when the guy is getting the test and he's just sort of toying with him because he's supposed to be super intelligent. So he's like, what's a turtle? In the beginning of this confession, she's like, you know, I feel bad when I step on two straws in the shape of a cross. It's the most modest of confessions, stepping on two straws that have formed a crucifix by accident. Right. It's quaint. What could be more innocent than that? And then it just builds and builds, and it's like, I killed this waitress once with a knife. Oh, God. It's just awful. It's the stuff of nightmares, and I love it so much. A lot of the gore in this movie takes place off screen and then just gets described later. So including that priest's beheading. You just see a bag, a head-shaped bag later, and then you can just kind of Put together what may have happened. And so George C. Scott's character is after this killer, the Gemini. Well, well, he's not after the Gemini killer. Someone's killing. The uh, Gemini MO that you heard about is false. The missing finger was not on the victim's left hand, but on the right. It was the index finger, this one. And the sign of the Gemini was carved not on the victim's back, but on the victim's left-hand palm. This movie for me was my introduction to the concept of the police withholding details of a crime. Yeah, I don't remember the first time I heard about that, but that's cool that this is where you learned it. Yeah, that, that way when, you know, when, when I hear about like a true crime things like the Manson killings or something, I'm like, oh, yeah, just like in The Exorcist 3 where they keep it out of the papers. Well, because you get a lot of people calling in to confess mm-hmm. to things that they didn't do and... Or you withhold and or leak fake details out about the killing so that if people yes. call in and confess to a fake part of it and go like, yeah, I cut off their left ear when it was really their right pinky toe or something, <laughs> then you know that they're lying. Um, yeah. Genius. Yeah. But now these like trademark things that nobody was supposed to know about start showing up on bodies. But the killer got the chair 15 years ago. Right. So it's all the hallmarks of this serial killer who can't possibly be committing these murders because he's dead. Yeah. Now, really, I would have loved Kinderman and Dyer solving crimes together. Mm-hmm. The priest and the detective with all of their banter. But unfortunately, um, Father Dyer does not last. No, no. And he is voided of all of his blood, all the blood in his body. Is that crazy? It's one of the wildest things I've ever seen on film. I swear, moment after moment in Exorcist 3, like my jaw dropped and I had to rewind it and rewatch a scene because I couldn't believe like it's it is you're right. Most of the stuff that happens happens off screen and then it's told about later or you see it later. But to me, it is an incredibly brutal movie, even though you're not seeing like torture and all of that stuff happen. The way that it's described and the way that they build up the tension and everything, to me, Mm -hmm. is like the stuff of nightmares. I found it all very effective. It's like, what is that? That's his blood. All of his blood. And not a drop of it spilled. All neat. There's not even a smudge on the jars. And not a drop spilled. And because that, like, implies real precision and care for what's being done and, like, someone who's really messed up in the head because how could you do something like that that way if you're of sound mind? And then it just makes it that much scarier. So after really that point, the majority of the film takes place in this hospital, which sequels, horror sequels, sequels in general, and hospitals 
You know, if part one really puts you through the ringer, there's a good or at least believable chance that in part two, you'll be hospitalized for some period of time. (laughs) That's how Aliens opens. Yeah. She's in a hospital. She's recovering, you know. Halloween 2? Yeah. Or even um, Rocky 2 starts in the hospital. Because I'm going to be busy healing here for a while, you know? So, yeah, a lot of it is in this hospital because also in the hospital, in the disturbed ward, is like patient X. Yeah. And you slowly start to figure out that patient X is, in fact, a couple of things. Is the body of Father Karras from part one, because they brought the actor back, but he is possessed by the Gemini killer. It's convoluted, but I'm going to be honest with you. I uh-huh. didn't see any of it coming, and it really worked for me. I'm glad. did not realize Jason Miller was going to be back. I did not, like, that tie-in, the whole story about how Father Karras's body wound up there and how he's been living there all this time, and the fact that he's, like, possessed by the ghost of this serial killer. Come on. In this body. In this body. In particular, in fact, ooh, let's call it revenge. Once again, Brad Dorif, who really shines. He's so good. I made Alec watch part of like one of his crazy monologues, but you think about it, in anyone else's hands, it just might not have been as effective. But yeah. I felt like his stuff in this movie is some of the most electric stuff that's ever been put on screen. He's so good. Like... When I was watching his stuff, and the movie had already been so good, and then you got to his bonkers performance and the stuff that he gets to say, I was like, this is a movie that I will absolutely watch again, and I want to show to somebody who's never seen it. A decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's cocking, I always hold it up so that it can see its body it's a little extra i throw in for no (laughs) and it came out just a little like a year before silence of the lambs wow just as far as like having such a powerful character who's restrained in a psych ward the whole time right right now a lot of what we saw uh you and i watching exorcist 3 when it came to uh the gemini killer and possessing a priest that was dead and he's been spending all these years like reestablishing his brain power because it was all turned to mush because he was dead you know they give you a little science behind it and how much work that took to kind of come back from that you know yeah well a lot of that is really just studio director compromise because Mm -hmm. blatty went really far in just trying to film with just dorif and then the studio was like we need more connections to exorcist one so we're going to get you Jason Miller, wow. and you're going to reshoot it. So everything we were seeing Dorf doing, that was actually a second time around. And Joe Bob Briggs got pretty heavily into this. Jason Miller was on sort of the tail end of alcoholism, Ooh. and his brain was starting to go. <gasps> oh, and no. so he was then not really capable of getting out monologues. So then this kind of back and forth, sometimes it's Dorf, sometimes it's Miller playing the same part, which I think really works. I picked her up in Richmond, and then I dropped her off at the city dump. Some of her. Some of her I kept. It's not what either the studio or the director wanted, but I think it came out well. It's a little convoluted. You have to pay attention. I agree with you. I found it to be utterly compelling. 
And it's like you said, even though it's not what either party necessarily exactly wanted, that's just the nature of film or anything creative. It's just almost never, ever going to be exactly what you envision. But then these happy accidents or constraints or things you're forced into doing kind of wind up making it a little bit more magical or something that you couldn't have predicted. And that's what's so exciting about it. I want the movie to end with a big explosion. But it ends with Dr. Vornoff falling into the pit. Not anymore. And the jump scare, which I don't want to completely give away. (sighs) But you watched it knowing there would be a jump scare somewhere. Unfortunately, I knew what this shot looked like because I think in some kind of like YouTube video compilation somewhere in my life of like the scariest jump scares in movies or something, mm-hmm. I had seen it. So I, I didn't know exactly when it would come, but I kind of knew it was going to be in the hospital. And I think I wouldn't have like watched that stuff, but I don't think I ever thought I'd like care to sit and watch Exorcist 3 or something. I don't know. I was just like, oh, okay, I'll probably never watch that movie. And now I'm mad because <laughs> I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't know. I wish I had not known at all because I bet that I would have really come out of my skin. That said, there was a moment with the patient who put on the nurse costume and was like possessed and went to his house that really got my goat like big time and also the ceiling thing really got me too. Oh yeah. Without being too specific. Like there were definitely still moments besides the quote jump scare that got me. And that's what I love so much is you've got this like character driven plot in this movie that has these really grounded characters. And then you got some kind of bonkers straight up horror stuff. And it all, for me, it all works. All of it. I didn't know a jump scare was coming. Oh boy. I was watching it completely new. First came to cable. I was probably about 14, I suppose. Oh, my God. It really lulls you. You might think something's coming because they're really holding the shot. Sure. Oh, yeah, that goes on for quite a long time. But you don't think it's coming right then. And I guess that's all I'll say. Um, If you've seen it, you know it. If you want to check it out, I hope it still gets to you. It's so scary that it's going to make those little hairs on the back of your neck just stand straight up so you look like a... Porcupine or some type of animal like that. And how often do you even hear that, by the way, going in to any horror movie, like like when someone's describing it to you, where they say that there's one particular scare? Yeah. Let alone a jump scare. Right. To recommend a film to you. Well, that goes to show you how absolutely affecting it must have been for people when they first saw it. I heard, well, I mean, after the fact, I heard about Exorcist 3 and uh, the movie Wait Until Dark. Audrey Hepburn plays a blind woman. She is blind. And she is alone, with a terrible suspicion growing. I was sort of sold on that movie on the basis of one jump scare. But that's it. It's, it's a very uncommon thing to take away and then promote a movie with. I mean, you certainly don't see it in the commercials. You know, come and see Exorcist 3. There's this one scare. Starts Friday. But yeah, there it is. And it's how effective is it? We're talking about it. Here are some super trilogy rules. One, you got a killer who's going to be superhuman. Stabbing him won't work. Shooting him won't work. Basically, in the third one, you got to cryogenically freeze his head, decapitate him, or blow him up. Number two, anyone, including the main character, can die. If a third movie in a quote trilogy is supposed to take the original and bump it up to like 11 or whatever, I feel like maybe Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which we'll talk about next, 
probably is the best of the three we're going to talk about to do that, to like take the original and like exponentially kind of expound upon the things that were great about the first one. That said, I feel like Exorcist 3 has like cool elements from the first one, like the whole exorcism stuff right at the end that to my understanding was definitely added in later which I love. Very, very cool. I mean, Karis on that cross, like, and all, absolutely wild. But it's, I feel like Exorcist 3 is wholly a different type of movie than the first movie, but it's still connected to it. I just found it to be so incredible. And I, now I understand why all these people have been talking about it. I've been hearing so many good things about this movie for years, and I completely agree and understand why people like get aggressive about it. And they're like, it's so good. You have to watch it. Now I know why. And (laughs) I am now one of those people. (laughs) We are both. Yeah. Um, Going back to uh, the dream, which is uh, Detective Kinderman's dream. Yeah. He has it on the night when his friend is being murdered. Yeah. It's one of the coolest scenes in the movie. By the end of it, he runs into his friend and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? And he's got just sort of like a gash in his neck that's been like stapled shut with like giant sort of Frankenstein staples. Yeah. And there's angels there, which is great. And Patrick Ewing's an angel. Fabio is an angel. It feels silly now, especially because Fabio, after a little while of being like a straightforward, you know, handsome man for a living, he then just started parodying himself in like um, butter commercials and music video. Totally. So now when you see him, it's silly. It's Fabio for Pete's sakes. Yeah. But at the time it was just like handsome man like if you were to hire someone to be an angel sure why wouldn't they just be a beautiful man yes but also the location where they were i I don't know about other people's dreams we only have each other's word for it when it comes to what dreams are like you know what i mean yeah like i know what my dreams are like and other people have told me about theirs and they sort of seem to line up but when it comes to locations the idea of like one location being different places it's like i was back in my high school but it was also a museum Or like, I was at my house. It didn't look like my house, but it was my house, you know? Yeah. And so he's in, where is he? Uh, He's in a hospital that's also a train station. Yeah. But it's got a jazz band playing and just kind of all kinds of strange people. Mm -hmm. That felt very, uh, very true to dreams, in my opinion. Yeah. Agreed. Something pointed out uh, by Peter Dinklage in one of his early roles in the movie Living in Oblivion. Which is, uh, why is there got to be a dwarf? What? Why does my character have to be a dwarf? It doesn't have to be a dwarf. <laughs> then why is he? Is that the only way you can make this a dream? Put a dwarf in it? His great line is like, I'm a dwarf, and I don't even dream about dwarves. <laughs> but um, proportion is supposed to be something affected in dreams, and dwarves seem to embody that plenty sure. well. And everything after Twin Peaks... You know, dwarves equal strange dreams. There's a dwarf. Right, right. And there's two dwarves in Kinderman's dream, and they're carrying something like a clock. But going over to our final part three, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, Mm -hmm. they have dream after dream after dream in that series, and I can't remember one dwarf. (laughs) Right. And for this podcast, I watched up to part five. No dwarves. To my memory, yeah, I wanted to check with you on that one. Any dwarves? Uh, I don't recall a dwarf. I guess that's a good thing, because it seems to be a bit of a stereotype. You know, although by part, how many have they made, including the new one? Five, six, uh, seven, eight. 
with Freddy versus Jason. Anyways, if they eventually work their way to having a dwarf, I don't suppose that would be so bad. going into a nightmare three you texted me saying like oh you know can i push back our meeting by like 15 minutes i'm like great because i need to check out this this like detail that i've been thinking about okay which is um now everything's more exaggerated like even in the dreams in part one there'd be like a sheep or like leaves in the school you know right so you'd know like oh it's a dream it's weird but as the movies have gone on, and I guess the budgets get bigger, things become huge and exaggerated. They've got these big dream set pieces. And to connect them, they're using the house, the Elm Street house. I used to live in this house. That's just a house I dream about. You need to have something to do with Elm Street, I suppose, in Nightmare on Elm Street, because the whole movie takes place in a hospital. Yeah. So one of the touchstones that's been consistent through to part three has been Nancy's house, which... Freddie has seemed to have, like, taken, like, a residence in. Yeah. I guess if for no other reason than because, like, his glove was there for so many years, that's where he was defeated. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's pretty important, too. If Nancy was able to overcome her fear of him and, like, at least temporarily defeat him, it seems like a place that would become, like, a sticking point in his mind, in whatever mind, kind of mind he has. And now it's got a red door. Yeah, which I never noticed. Well, it's so associated with the red door, but that didn't start until part two. Part one, it was a blue door. Yeah, it's weird because I think retroactively in my mind, I just think of it as having a red door even in part one. But yeah, so yeah, you totally blew my mind with that fact. So now that's where Freddy lives, this house. Yep. And when you go inside, it's a weird, distorted dream version of the house we kind of remember the geography from part one and two of the house just sort of like the staircase goes up here and then over here is the living room but everything's just like creepy and wallpapers peeling and things are knocked over and there's a pig on the table but the sort of detail that i had wanted to check out was when she goes down to the basement does she go down to the equivalent of a nightmare version of freddy's boiler room or is it just a nightmare version of the basement and the furnace where, isn't the furnace where the glove was kept? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This is the kind of stuff that could keep you up at night, Marshall. See what I did there? <laughs> Whatever I do, don't fall asleep. <laughs> I'm really not tired. Kristen, don't start with me. You know what your shrink said. He's full of it. I'm not going to let you get into an argument. Not tonight. Now get to sleep. Boom. I'm still having those awful dreams. The opening of part three, we meet for the first time, new character, Kristen, played by... Kristen, sometimes they call her Kirsten at the beginning. 
Okay. But okay. It, it becomes Kristen. It's just something that I think Daniel or Matthew pointed out to me uh, years ago that I've never been able to unhear, which <laughs> is at the beginning of the movie, there's there's a little bit of back and forth on the pronunciation of her name, but I do think ultimately she becomes Kristen. Okay. Played by Patricia Arquette, Academy Award winner Patricia Arquette. Never been in a movie. Yeah. It's her first time. Fresh face. Who's this? It's Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Get to know her. And she goes through, like, you know, she's outside the house. She's dreaming. She goes in the house. She's with the little girl. Then she goes down into the basement. But the basement's got this, like, big metal door on it. Also, is the so little I, girl herself? No. I, it's supposed to. She's one of the jump rope girls. Mm-hmm. And, who are supposed to be, like, the harbingers of Freddy. He's totally. Coming. But I, I don't know. She's a little blonde girl. I feel like you could make the argument that it's her. That's true. I, Especially it's, if it's in your dream, you might see the child version of yourself. Also true. Also true. Because they say you are all the characters. Mm-hmm. I always assume Freddy's all the characters, but you, know, you never really know. Yeah. I think it's mostly thought of that the jump rope children are his previous victims. Hmm. Which is also interesting that that's how he sees them, as being these sort of like angelic children, all in white, that he has then tainted. Hmm. Plenty creepy, no matter what they are really supposed to be, doing the the Freddy song. So, my big question was, was it an exaggerated boiler room or an exaggerated basement of the Elm Street house? And first time through... I think it's supposed to be just the Elm Street house, but like with some boiler room elements, like the big metal door. But I think it's still supposed to be just the basement of the Elm Street house at that point. But later, uh-huh. when all of them are in the house, this nightmare version of the house, and they go through like the floating door and down the staircase and into this big room that's just like a pit with giant Mario Brothers sized pipes kind of going along the walls and heading towards the center. Then I think it's got some furnace elements, but now it's more boiler room, more nightmare version of a boiler room. You've spent a lot of time thinking about this particular topic. More and than that. And does it really matter? <laughs> well, just the progression of the movies in part one, when Nancy goes to the boiler room to encounter him, they filmed in like an actual like, like factory, a place with actual pipes. Uh-huh. They lit it, they gave it more steam, but at the end of the day, all of those pipes actually had functions. It was like a real place. Uh-huh. Part two, they went to some like old power plant. So I'm just going to disregard that. But now part three, you could say Freddy's getting stronger and the dreams are becoming more exaggerated, like nightmares are supposed to. And now it's in no way a functional boiler room and no longer depending on just spooky lighting and steam. It's big, and it's weird, and it's scary, and it's twisty. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, if a boiler room had a nightmare, that's what it would look like. All right. Yeah, that's how I've been spending my time. Breaking down basement v. boiler room. Well, I think when we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 3, I kind of mentioned this just a minute ago with Exorcist 3, which yeah. is the idea that the third in a trilogy, which I'm not sure you could call all three of these movies we're covering, like the third in a trilogy. No. 
the third of a franchise, even if it was the last one. A third of a franchise, yeah. But I do think that Nightmare on Elm Street 3 really does take the elements of part one and blow it all up, all the best parts, all the cool parts, all Mm -hmm. the scary things, and really does just make it bigger and badder and cooler in a lot of ways. Yes. And I think that's got to be... You know, that plus the big cast of characters where there's really something for everyone to identify with, I think is why so many people hold this movie so dear to their hearts. Like, people are crazy about this movie. This ain't your average drive-in movie schlock we got here. Instead of just Nancy from part one going up against Freddy, now it's the Warriors. It's the squad. It's the Dirty Dozen of Dreams. It's the Breakfast Club. Yes, yes. yeah. All of you have this inner strength, some special power that you've had in your most wonderful dreams. Together, we can learn to use that power if we try. And what I found is interesting is that I read, I, as you know, sometimes if I just kind of musing on a movie, it really helps me sort of center myself to read like what Roger Ebert had to say about it at the time, just did to sort of like see, get a read on the room with him. He did not. No. no, he in fact said that he didn't really care about the characters, which is interesting to me because that's one of the things that people point to about this movie that they love is the characters specifically that. And the new direction seemed more focused towards a younger audience because it was getting broader and more exciting. Yeah. And I don't think he liked that it was being marketed um, down from where it was before, down in age, which it definitely was. They were learning its appeal among very young movie watchers. Now that video was a thing, you know, the first one was 1984. There wasn't really a, a VCR in every house in 1984. But by, what was this, 87? There was. Yeah. There was yeah. a lot of VHS machines out there and a lot of young kids watching horror and... I think they were skewing closer to them than they were, you know, 17 and up. Hey, touch that rewind button and your dog meat. Stay put. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. And for your own good, just make sure you don't, uh, <laughs> no at all. <laughs> You know, I don't remember watching this movie in its entirety until a few years ago, but I know that I caught it on HBO or wherever because I know it wasn't on like mm-hmm. TBS just because of the graphic nature of of the kills and specifically the one I'm I'm going to mention, okay. but I know either I caught it on TV or my brother had rented the VHS or whatever, but one of my earliest traumatic childhood memories is of the like marionette kill from this movie i still have a really hard time watching that scene because it's so awful and it just hurts it physically hurts me to watch it but as a kid that part of this movie is what made me like scared of freddy because it was so brutal he's barely in that scene i don't know the freddy in the first i know and in the scene he's kind of like there's some stop motion freddy going on or maybe yeah you're right it's a a puppet come to life and he he kind of That's right. But that doesn't last long. No, it doesn't last long, and it doesn't take the sting out of how awful it is that this guy's, like, tendons and veins are ripped out of his arms and legs. Yeah, really, really awful stuff. And it really seared into me, like, that Freddy movies... (sighs) My, My brother 
contextualized a lot of horror and made a lot of horror movies fun for me. Would you say that he that he was your horror host? My brother, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, but the problem is, like, that I think as a kid, I had a hard time bouncing back and forth between, like, the tonal shifts of a movie like this. Because, like, this is the movie they talk about that, like, really catapulted Freddy into the fun Freddy, the mouthy yeah. Freddy. Like, it really expanded that aspect of him for the sequels. And I understood that Freddy said funny things and was, like playful and quippy and said stuff to laugh at but like when someone's tendons are being like used as marionette strings all bets are off for me as a kid i was like it ain't funny anymore yeah. you know like so it really that stuff really affected me and i, I liked freddie but specifically that kill just really did a number on me that has not i've not sure. fully recovered from it i don't think a nightmare on elm street part three freddie's back it was great. If Excellent. you've seen one and two, you have to see number three. Totally bizarre. A total nightmare. It was better than all of them combined. Freddy's and nuts. A nightmare on Elm Street, part three, Dream Warriors. Now playing at a theater near you. Going back, um, you know, part two, which is really getting more and more interest as the years go on. Yeah. And in fact, is featured in our very first our very episode our very of first, Boys and Fools. I didn't know how we would possibly fill 45 minutes just <laughs> talking. So it was developing enough of a reputation as just being off the wall and unwittingly gay Yeah, that there would be plenty to talk about. And I was right. There was. Yeah, for sure. At the time, they didn't put a lot, I don't think, into part two. First of all, well, they couldn't get Wes Craven back. And I think at first they didn't even have Robert England really on board. They were just like, yeah, we'll just get anybody. If I'm remembering the Never Sleep Again documentary correctly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then they found that Robert England, you know, just even his long shots, there was no one like Robert England for the part. But they weren't counting on people being as into it and all the money that they made off of it. Right. So even though it was a financial success, I think they knew that they really hadn't put much behind it, you know. Things didn't really work, and they still put it in. Things didn't really make sense, and they still put it in. It probably wasn't very high in importance at New Line. You know, it was a sequel. It was a part two. It was kind of a, a, not exactly a cash grab, but it wasn't like something that they had to um, foster or take care of or look after, you know? It wasn't as important to them as it would become. But after the success of part two, because everybody loves Freddy, even if the movie's kind of odd and a little patchy, then they knew that if they were going to continue with the franchise, that part three would have to really deliver and they'd have to take care of the franchise and look after the franchise and put a lot of talent into the franchise and take a more hands-on approach. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got part three. That's right. It's the return of cult hero Freddy Krueger, the same vile maniac who helped turn the first two nightmares into video blockbusters. I don't think it was necessarily a reaction against part two in in any of the directions that it took, but I think it was sort of springboarded off of the success of part two. Yeah, for 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 sure. All the places they went, which part two, what, what part two did do that stuck with the franchise is a kill themed specifically to the person being killed, you know? Mm -hmm. The method Mm -hmm. of death, the nightmare. Uh, Because in part one, no one's personality really 
it was just a nightmare. You That's know? right. It was scary on its own. And it was effective because it was scary, because it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But no one's personality dictated the kind of nightmare that they'd have. It was just scary. It's like, oh, now the room's spinning. That's scary. Right. Oh, now he's, he's getting sucked into his bed. Why? Did he have some relationship with beds? Right. No, it's just scary. Isn't it scary to get just sucked into your bed and then a geyser right. of blood comes up? Yeah, you're right. It, like, elevates it from, whoa, this could happen to me even at home in my own bed. Like, nowhere is safe to, oh, are you really afraid of spiders? Well, guess what? That's going to be the most prevalent character in your horrifying nightmare death. Yeah. And I think none does it better than part three, by the way. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's just like, well, I guess the next one, Dream Master, when a guy is like, killed with karate. And it's like, well, karate is not really a personality. It's more of a hobby, but okay. Well, I don't know if it's always a personality. Sometimes it's a fear or an obsession or something they like. It's not yeah. just, you know. Being played against them. Yeah. Just like, well, Joey, he's got a crush on the nurse. Mm-hmm. And that gets him separated from the rest of the group. Yep. When uh, Freddie poses as a nurse. Yeah. But yeah, now people are getting their uh, parts of their personality played against them. I guess maybe just for Freddie's amusement or maybe just our amusement at home. But they're all more personal now. The marionette guy, he would make marionettes. All right. The girl who gets her head slammed into the TV, mm-hmm. she wanted to be an actress. She wanted to be on TV. Um, do you want to talk about that scene for a moment? I mean, I don't know what we can say that's not already been said about that scene. Um... People talk about how it's like the greatest kill in all of, you know, the franchise. It is pretty good. Uh, First, she's just watching TV. And now that I've been watching The Howling, I overheard Dee Wallace's voice on the TV. I looked into it and she was watching a scene from Critters, which was also a New Line movie. Nice. So I'm like, ah, Dee Wallace, she's back. And then there's a shot of Donald Pleasance, if, if you can catch that on the TV. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that was from the Asylum movie, where the, the inmates start running the asylum with Jack Palance. Oh, I found it. It's Alone in the Dark. Uh, but then they go to a uh, Dick Cavett show, where, I mean, I guess I might have been like, hey, it's the guy from Beetlejuice, because I didn't know from the Dick Cavett show. And he's interviewing Zsa, Zsa Gabor, which was apparently they asked him who he wants to uh, interview. For their like yeah. fake show, and he was he was like Zsa Zsa Gabor because yeah. that's who I want to see get killed. Can I ask you something? Certainly. Who in that fuck what you think? And like, like Dick Cavett turns into Freddy and kills Zsa Zsa Gabor. Yes, it's delightful. And the girl, she approaches the TV and then arms come out of the TV, but not people arms, like machine arms, like made of TV components. And then Freddy's head comes up, and it shouldn't be as scary as it is, but it is. Because he literally has bunny ears, like old-style Martian antennae coming out of his head. That's supposed to be the TV antenna. I think antennas coming out of heads, you're literally getting bunny ears. Yeah. Should be sillier than it is, because it's actually pretty terrifying. And he had another line besides the iconic line, but I guess that line wasn't working. So uh, what we now remember uh, got improvised. Are you talking about welcome to prime time, bitch? I am. (laughs) It's a great line. Apparently, the thing that Robert England is most asked to sign on autographs is welcome to primetime, bitch. Not surprising. Yeah. And her thing was, like, she, like, 
as soon as she gets out of this mental institution, she's going to go to Hollywood and become an actress. Spoiler alert, she's not. She's not. She's not. And how much did they think she had to, like, run at the television if they thought she'd, like, killed herself? Yeah, I know. The notion of busting your head into a TV. There's no way you could brain yourself on a TV that way. Yeah. You can't physically they, they really stand up and, yeah, for sure. The staff is like, well, we lost another one. Speaking of we lost another one, I think it's important to touch on the idea that this is an even more intense version of the themes in the first movie where the parents don't believe the kids at all about what's happening. And, the you know, mm-hmm. in this movie, the staff doesn't believe the kids, you know, at least most of the staff. Nope. And Medical doctors. Right. And I came upon something I wanted to ask you about, which is sort of the... You know, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors' place in what I was reading was a really common sort of thread at the time, which was kind of teen suicide Mm -hmm. as a theme, slash movies about teen suicide, slash I guess I was hearing that there were a lot of like, or maybe not a lot, but there were after school specials that sort of touched on teen depression and suicide. This seems like it was a theme in the mid to late 80s. Is that something you remember seeing as a young person? Because I was just a little bit younger than you. It was present, uh-huh. certainly. What I don't think I really realized, and I'm just sort of coming to, is how teen institutionalization became a bigger thing. Uh-huh. Sure. And I guess they were just making themselves more available and more of an option for parents who like didn't know what to do with their with their uh, didn't know what to do with their kids kids. yeah it was just like oh ship them off we'll take care of them and i don't think that i don't know maybe there's some success stories yeah but um well i think there were probably what i've heard horror stories yeah and if you think about yeah really if you're watching this you know any i think for me as a kid the appeal of a lot of like fantasy and or horror movies were a teenager was a protagonist Mm -hmm. or a young kid was a protagonist was like, wow, a kid gets to be the star of this. And then also there's the like catharsis or whatever of seeing a kid as the lead and nobody believes them, but they're right. And the adults don't believe them, but the kid prevails. And I think there's something about this movie that kind of made a whole generation of kids feel understood or feel like there was someone on screen they could identify with and they could understand the feeling of their parents not listening to them and them saying no like this is what's going on and their parents being like no we're gonna put some medication in you and you're gonna stop all Mm -hmm. this nonsense you know i think what you're dancing around here is empowered yeah for sure they would certainly feel empowered perhaps by watching these uh this collection of young people uh rise to the challenge yeah with Almost no help from adults. I'm Dr. Gordon. I'm not going to hurt you. I want to help you. Kristen, put the scalpel down. Nobody's going to hurt you. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, better stay up late. Never, never, never sleep again. We have not mentioned the return of Nancy. Oh, Nancy. Nancy Nancy's Thompson. back. Whatever you thought happened to her at the end of part one didn't quite happen. No, she wears blazers with shoulder pads. She's an adult now. Yeah, does she? 
But uh, Nancy is now like a, a grad student with an emphasis on a psychology, child psychology, perhaps. Yep. And she's now interning at the hospital where the last of the Elm Street children are being tormented. But nobody believes them, except here comes Nancy. But she can't just come out and say, ah, oh, it's Freddy Krueger. Our parents killed him, you know? <laughs> she can't no. come out and say it to the kids. And she can't come out and say it to, like, the other doctor, like the guy who's in charge. Who that guy, he was the lead in Body Double. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And I think he gets sort of sold as an everyman, but he's just kind of bland. Um, I'm not a huge fan. Bland guy. Let's see. The actor, no offense to uh, Craig Wasson. Craig Wasson. So I guess if you need yeah. a guy who's going to quickly get usurped by his intern, uh-huh. he's a guy who cares but he's really kind of at the end of his abilities when we meet him. Yeah, I think there is something about, you know, because full disclosure, I mm-hmm. I know for some people, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, like, hung the moon, and it's this, like, amazing, it's their favorite one in the series and all of that. Yeah. I enjoy it just fine. It's not my very favorite. I don't think it hit me at the right time or something. But there are a lot of things about the movie that I do really enjoy, and his character is not one of them. <laughs> yeah. He's functional. It might not be the actor's fault. It might just be the character. I don't know. I feel like it's a really controversial thing to say that it's like not your favorite. I like it. I like it just fine. There are a lot of great yeah. characters, a lot of great actors. There's a lot of great stuff about it. It's just not my very favorite horror movie. Okay. Do you have a more favorite Nightmare on Elm Street? I guess the first one. Yeah, I'd pick the first one. I love the first one. And honestly, right after the first one comes New Nightmare for me. Which, by the way, I do want to say that I either read or saw it on Never Sleep Again when I was re-watching that segment. Uh-huh. That Wes Craven's original concept for the third Nightmare movie was to have Freddy Krueger enter the real world and stalk the actors. They got there. Which is what New Nightmare wound up being. So like, that's an idea he had that early on. And I think New Nightmare is a masterpiece. I love that movie, but... um, Once you go there, you can't come back, I think. Right. For sure. Definitely. It happened when it was supposed to happen. That's how I feel. I've seen Dream Warriors a few times, and I do think I like it more every single time. And I think in part it's because it's just... It's because of all the reasons why it's such a great part three, which is they spent a lot of money on this movie and it shows. And then you have all these kills. You know, the creativity is just incredible. The special effects are wild. You know, you get such great Freddy action. Robert England just gets to shine even more than he did in the first couple movies. I do all the work and look who sponges up all the strokes. That spineless crustacean of an actor, Robert England. Uh, part two did not add to Freddy's backstory, and most of the other sequels did. Right. Well, first part one, you learn who he is. Part two, no new information. You're right. But then part three, you get the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Which is the coolest phrase um, ever. Yeah. And that backstory is really just so messed up. As told... By the nun ghost of his mother. Yeah. And then in the sequels, you still get like little bits of information about him coming in. So I think that's important to not just um, rest on your laurels when it comes to like having like a character. You know, Freddy never gets an arc, but he does frequently get his backstory a little more filled in. Yep. Freddy. 
the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Some say he was murdered. No body was ever found. You said something before about laying him to rest. You must find the remains and bury him in hallowed ground. So yes, yeah, so now there's the concept that you have to bury him in consecrated, consecrated ground, which gives us the junkyard, which is a great addition, I think, yeah. to like his overall lore. And they bring it back in a Dream Master. They bring back the car graveyard, the junkyard, mm-hmm. with all these dead cars piled on top of each other, forming a labyrinth. It's a great look and a great set, and just like a great set piece. That if you look at the poster for the next movie, Dream Master... You can see, like, the junkyard kind of filling in the dead spaces. Because it's a potent image. It's really nice. Yeah. And you get some stop motion. Some old school Ray Harryhausen, Jason of the Argonaut skeleton stop motion. Which was the, on purpose, special effects teams, like, nod to Harryhausen. Yes, absolutely. And it works. Kristen! I think... When people talk about part three and parts they remember, it doesn't last very long. It's not a long scene. But the character of Taryn, who has like a history of drug addiction. Yeah. Before coming into the asylum. Yeah. She gets tempted one time by like an orderly being like, hey, I got the keys to the pharmacy. Let's get high. And she's like, no. And then she reveals that like her dream image of herself is that she's beautiful and bad. (laughs) Well, there's something that, like, feels really taboo about directly addressing, like, a teenager or young person addicted to drugs and Mm -hmm. seeing needles and then the weird, like, little Freddy mouths. Her addiction personified. Yeah. Like, making little sucking sounds. Yeah. It's so disturbing. And I feel like, you know, as outrageous as it is, it's like that is something that your dream mind would come up with. It looks like the very personification of addiction. Yeah, exactly. She's saying no, but her veins are like, nom, nom, nom. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, she gets into like a little switchblade fight. She's holding her own for a moment, but it doesn't last. (sighs) Now, originally her head was supposed to explode. They made a fake head that was supposed to blow up, and like I think only the eyelids blew off, and they were just like, yeah. "Ah, forget it. She'll <laughs> just, she'll just be dead." And then finally, in a time when there's a part four, five, and six, etc., that don't feature Nancy, it might not be a big surprise that she dies in part three. Right. But watching it cold and for the first time, I mean. The father dies, and you're like, oh, the father died. And I always thought he was still a cop. I never looked closely enough at his badge to see he was the security officer now. Mm, yeah, he's he's a bit of a drunk, yeah, I think. So many of the vigilante adults that killed Freddy, there's a lot of broken people in there. It came with a price. <laughs> but yeah, so, so he dies in the junkyard, and then appears like a ghost to say it's all okay. And... I'd seen a few movies like that, you know, by that time. You figure, oh, okay, the ghost has come to say, hey, don't be sad. It's okay. And then, you know, and then the movie ends where you're like, oh, I'm a little sad, but it's okay. 
And then it turns out it wasn't a ghost, it was still Freddy. And while she hugs her father, he gets her with his knife club. Yeah. And uh, he's still defeated, well, as much as he can be, I guess. Right. By the end, which is he, he finally gets uh, buried in consecrated ground by the doctor. Really, it's up to the Dream Warriors just to last. They just got to stay alive. And Nancy helps them to stay alive, you know? If, if you're looking for kind of a takeaway from her death, just so it doesn't feel just random and arbitrary. Right. She helped them to last. Yeah. She got them together and, and helped them last as long as they did until the uh, burial rites were completed. Yeah, and empowered the kids to, like, find their strength. Yes. Which can't yes. be overstated. Like, that's a big deal. Absolutely. And I think, again, to, like, just bring it back to kids. When I say kids, I just mean young people watching mm-hmm. this. It's like. A lot were kids. Yeah, you're watching it as like, yeah, this is a rad horror movie. Whoa, you know, his fingers are hypodermic needles. That's crazy. But also, like, you're watching it as a kid who feels misunderstood and nobody listens to you. And then to have a Nancy character who's like, I believe you and I think you can do it. I think you can do whatever you set your mind to. Like, I think most kids, if they're lucky, if we're lucky, you can relate to having some adult figure or some kid who's a little older than you are who gives you the confidence to be sure in yourself that you can do whatever it is that you're scared to do. And that I think that's part of why the themes of the movie are so powerful for people watching it. Even if you can't articulate it that way, even if as a kid you're just like, yeah, cool, like Freddy. Um, he smashed her head into a TV. It's like, okay. But that stuff works on a deeper level even when you don't realize it is. Yeah, and that's that's why it lasts over other part threes. Yeah. Or just other movies in general. Yep. And even if for some people part three was their first one, which I have a feeling it was. Sure. Every movie in a franchise is often somebody's first movie when, when they come around to it. And I think that uh, when it was new on VHS, it became a lot of people's first Nightmare on Elm Street. Definitely. So a great entry point and a real way to get hooked, I'd say, on the, uh, the phenomenon that was Freddy Krueger. Definitely. He's a cartoon in a lot of ways. And you're melding that with like some boobs in this one. And <laughs> yeah. some, uh, some murder and, you know, a boogeyman. It's like the perfect formula for kids. They downplayed the child molester angle. Mm, yeah. Now that he was becoming a fan favorite. And then played up the rock and roll. Welcome to Elm Street, my pretties. I dare you to take a nap during the next 60 minutes. Why? Because there's video coming up from ZZ Top, Duck, and in fact, a couple guys from the band said they might drop by if they're not crazy cats. Now, this was already a year after Alice Cooper had done his contribution for uh, the Friday the 13th series. Mm. You mean the man behind the mask? I do mean that man behind the mask. And that music video, which was cut with moments from the movie, played gangbusters like all the time on MTV, to my recollection. And then they did it again with the Dawkins song, Dream Warriors. The music video for which is mostly just like the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah, totally. It's Kristen's first dream, which plays like a music video 
minus a band, and then they just added yeah. the band. Because there would be that sort of like narrative in rock songs where like a youth would sort of enter into the nightmarish rehearsal space of a band and be just sort of intimidated and then by the end be rocking with them. That's kind of the arc of the video. Yeah. And, you know, you just add a few cutaways to, you know, the members of Dokken playing their instruments off in the corner. And that first nightmare where she goes into the Elm Street house, it's just got the arc of a music video. Yeah. There's very, very little had to be done. It was pretty great. Yeah, it's very cool. And I find the segment in Never Sleep Again, which we keep mentioning it, um, it's a must-watch documentary about the entire series. But uh, Doc and are in this segment talking about part three, and they are like just so enthusiastic. They're just like, yeah, it's so cool to be a part of it. But the lead singer is like, I can't sing it anymore because it's so high. It's so high. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty cute. And... We learned this information from the band. It was the first music video tie-in to be included on the VHS release. That's right. Which, that was really a thing for a while. If they had, like, a music video to go with the movie, it's like, get the VHS tape, special feature at the end, stay tuned. Because it's not like there was a menu. You would just have to wait till after the credits. Right. See the music video by Dokken. <laughs> Hi, I'm Don Dokken. And I'm Jeff Pilson. And we've got a new song. In fact, it's the title track to Nightmare on Elm Street 3. It's called Dream Warriors. And Freddie said if we came by, he'd play it for us. But as you can see... (laughs) As you can see, I fucked up. (laughs) We did it. We've done it. Our first remote recording. And I've spent this recording just looking at a drawing of you that I have in a frame. I've got pictures of you, but I think the only thing in frames is like a caricature and then this uh, this other drawing. I don't know what well, that says. These are weird times, but um, I'm glad we were able to... I mean, it took us a little while, but we got other challenges in sure. our faces right now. As does everyone who's listening to this, and we're all kind of dealing right now with um, and have been dealing with a lot emotionally and like probably financially. You know, we, we've all taken weird hits and weird licks during this whole thing. But just know if you're listening and you um, and you feel like kind of sad a lot of the time, we do too. We're, we've been going through it as well. And we're just glad if you're listening to this that you took the time to tune in to another episode of Boys and Ghouls, and because um, we love yes. we love doing this. What a nightmare! Who were those guys? I had uh, brought it up to you. I was like, "Do you want to just do a simpler topic? You know, just maybe like one movie or something instead of the nine? Because if you're doing part <laughs> three, you know, if you want to put in your due diligence, then yep. you're also going to watch parts one and two. Yep." And you're like, no, we haven't put deadlines on ourselves for these. Uh, you may have noticed a pretty big gaps. Yeah. And I'm putting it out, but you're like, nine movies. I'm equal to the task, <laughs> even if it takes a while. Yeah. It's about quality over quantity. That's what we're all about. Hey, at least I didn't pick uh, Fantastic Fours, the best part fours oh in the series. Oh, my God. We'll definitely get there. We'd watch a combined 12 movies. <laughs> Oh, man. But all right. Uh, Kat, anything you want to uh, impart on our listeners? I, these days? Uh, 
I would like to say that um, even though you're spending a lot of time inside, it's still always important to beware the moon. Beware. Beware. 